Open, if you will, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, we will look this morning at verses 8 to 20, but to set the stage, the scene, if you will, we'll begin right here in verse 1. This is the word of the living God. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor in Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly afraid. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Father, we ask for your grace now. Holy Spirit, that you'd empower me to proclaim your truth, to communicate to your people the glorious gospel reality of your Son, the Prince of Peace, coming to earth. Lord, may you minister to the hearts of your people this morning. And for those who are here who do not know you personally, other than the fact that they stand in judgment because of their sin, would today hear with new eyes and new ears, the glorious good news, the gospel, your gospel of salvation, which comes by way of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, last time, we studied a portion of the Magnificat, Mary's song of praise in response to the private announcement that she, this young woman, would conceive and bear the Son of God. And we now move to the announcement of Christ's actual birth and the manner in which he would enter the world. Now, as I thought about this this week, now we all know that Christ's birth is quite remarkable, not only in its essence, in that God actually became a man, that God became a baby and grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man and would later lay his life down on a Roman cross. It's also quite remarkable how it happened 
And in addition to that, even more remarkable than that, as far as I'm concerned, is what didn't happen that night. What didn't happen that night. I mean, if it were up to me to write the setting of how the glorious Son of God would come to this earth to effect redemption for sinners, his entrance would have been much more dramatic. I would have invited every king and every dignitary from throughout all the world, all the known world, to be there to witness the condescension of God in sending his son. Mandatory that all these kings and all these dignitaries witness the king of kings coming to earth. I mean, we just read who was invited. This, were the, this was the only group invited, by the way. And while we think about that, think about who was not invited to this glorious event. No Roman officials whatsoever. No political figures. King Herod, not invited. Quirinius, the governor of Syria under, under Caesar Augustus, who ordered the census. Neither of them invited. No officials from Caesarea, just 60 miles or so up the coast of the Mediterranean. None of them notified. Notwithstanding, albeit, that they were pagan Romans. This we know. So what's even more remarkable then is that not one single leader of Israel were invited to the birth of Jesus Christ. Jerusalem is five miles away from Bethlehem and you do not see one Pharisee, one scribe, or one Sadducee invited to the glorious event of the birth of the Messiah. Not even local officials in Bethlehem were invited. Now remember also the reason that Mary and Joseph are here in Bethlehem. Every Israelite had been required to return to their ancestral city to register, ultimately for the purpose of taxation. So some of the most powerful and influential people in Israel were those who could prove their lineage back to King David. And if you were of the line of David, to Bethlehem you would go. So this would bring many rich and many powerful into Bethlehem. And not one of them were invited to the birth of Christ. Who was invited? Who was it that was invited? The most unlikely of all. The poor, insignificant, smelly shepherds. Now, they're apparently quite important to this story because as the Holy Spirit has revealed through the pen of Luke, there's only two verses provided for the most significant event in human history, and that is the actual birth of Jesus. In verses 6 and 7, you see the actual birth recorded. But from verses 8 to 20, Luke writes about these shepherds. So we need to look into this. Why so much time given to these lowly shepherds? You see, the reason is this. What these lowly shepherds experience is the very heart of the Christmas story. This is the core of Christianity. This, beloved, is the foundation of salvation. Right here, and it's this, in a nutshell, sovereign grace. God's sovereign purpose in saving whom he will save. Divine election, if you will. Notice, as outlined in your bulletin, you'll see the recipients of sovereign grace, the revelation of sovereign grace, and then finally the response of sovereign grace. Number one, the recipients of sovereign grace. Verse 8. unworthy recipients of grace, beloved. Just put yourself in this category. If you are saved here this morning, if you're a child of God, covered by the righteous blood of Jesus Christ, you are an unworthy recipient. Period. End of story. Amen? Amen. I'm glad you agree. Look at verse 8. In the same region, 
there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, many of you know that some have attempted to use this verse to prove that Jesus wasn't born in winter because shepherds wouldn't be watching over their flocks by night in the fields in the winter. That's not true. You know, you hear things and you just assume they're true. But there's many Jewish sources that record that flocks in Bethlehem were indeed overseen by shepherds throughout the whole year. So here you have many flocks brought together in this region known as Bethlehem, just outside of Bethlehem. The shepherds would collectively join their flocks together, and what they would do is build a small tower or a short stand. Say you have five, six shepherds, you'd have one or two that would stand watch, and the rest of them would sleep, and they would take turns throughout the night. And they would stand up on this stand to be able to look out over their flock, just like this to be able to see any wolves coming in from the wilderness. What do you do with wolves that prey on the flock? Kill them. (laughs) Any wolves that come in to prey upon God's people, the flock, will give them a chance to repent, and out they go. That's why shepherds carry a staff. Right? One is a curved end to protect and pull and guide the little baby sheep, and the other is a straight end. Boom. Protection. Or sometimes you might have to discipline one of the sheep. So here they are, standing watch over their flocks by night. Now, shepherds being included in the birth of Christ is perfectly normal for us. We've grown up, we've heard this story time and time again. However, in the first century, this would have been appalling to most people. Shepherds? You see, shepherds were a despised group of of people for many reasons. And according to the Jewish Talmud, the oral law of the Jews, they were a lower-class nomadic people, always wandering to find pasture for their flocks. They were a bunch of wanderers. They had no real roots. They weren't connected to community or culture, let alone the faith of Israel. Many of them didn't even have family that they were connected to, relationally. They were known to pick up anything that wasn't nailed down. Many of them had the reputation of being thieves. You've known people with sticky fingers? Do not leave your wallet laying on your table. They'll pick it up. I think it belongs to them. Rabbis used to include shepherds in their list of occupations known for cheating and stealing. Shepherds, cheaters, thieves. Anything being sold by a shepherd was assumed to have been stolen property. So it was therefore forbidden to purchase anything from a shepherd. Shepherds were not allowed to serve as witnesses in the court of law. Their testimony wasn't allowed. They couldn't be trusted. Another reason that they were viewed as outcasts is that their lifestyle took them away from the heart of Israel's faith. In the minds of the rabbis, they were continually unclean, ceremonially unclean. And since their manner of life was nomadic, that they were wanderers, they were uh, isolated from all religious activity and observance. So shepherds, therefore, as a class of people, were despised outcasts. The Midrash, an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, states, quote, No position in the world is so despised as that of a shepherd. One Jewish rabbi asks, quote, How in view of the despicable nature of shepherds can one explain the fact that God is called a shepherd? End quote. Yet, all in all, only shepherds were invited to the celebration of the birth of the Son of God. He chose, God, God chose to invite humble, the humble in rank, the lowly outcasts of the day, the dregs of society, to witness the birth of his son. Is it any different 
Is it any different for us who are recipients of God's grace today, beloved? Is it any different at all? No, it is not. Let me help you. It is not. We are the dregs of society in the eyes of God. All humanity are the dregs of society. All are unworthy recipients of the glorious grace and the goodness and the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. For there is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, therefore, is death. Physical death, yes, but spiritual death now. You're born with a nature that separates you from God. He is holy. He is infinite. We are finite. We are sinful. By nature, that is what we are. That is who we are. So just like these shepherds, we are utterly unworthy to receive God's grace and to worship at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are unworthy to stand here and sing the words that we did this morning. But by His grace, unmerited favor, grace and mercy, this is what He does for us. He condescends to make Himself known to whom, don't miss this, to whom He wills, beloved. To whom He wills. So, not unlike, not unlike these shepherds, God has shown us grace in spite of what we are and in spite of what we deserve. What we are as sinners by nature, what we deserve is eternal separation and eternal fire. That's what we deserve. Because God's standard, beloved, is holy perfection. Therefore, we need help, don't we? We need life because we're dead. So the night Jesus was born is simply a lesson in sovereign grace. A lesson in sovereign grace. So there you have the recipients. Next, let's look at the revelation of sovereign grace, verses 9 to 14. This is extraordinary revelation. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. This is no ordinary announcement. This is no mere messenger. Here they are in the middle of the night. And imagine while some of them are sleeping, or one or two of them are keeping watch, suddenly the glory of the Lord shone around them. Brilliant, blazing, blinding light. That's what they saw. And if the Old Testament and the book of Revelation are Indian, give us any indication, this would have been like the sun shining in its strength in the middle of the night. His power, the power of this angel, would have been such that he could have destroyed an entire encampment of God's enemies. Just like that. By wielding his sword with one single stroke. Just one angel has that power and carries with him that brilliance, the brilliance and the power of their creator, almighty God. So it's understandable that they would react with panic and fear. Terrified. When angels appear in the Bible, fear is the normal reaction. Just look back at chapter 1, verse 12. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist... An angel came to him, and verse 12, it says, fear actually gripped Zacharias. In Luke chapter 1, verse 30, the angel came to Mary, and what was, his, what was his first command? Do not be afraid. Why? Because that's the typical response. To these created beings of God, to, fall, to stand in the presence of fallen, finite humanity, we would respond in fear. Now, biblical angels, real angels, are not to be confused with the artist's renditions of, of effeminate-looking men. That's how angels are portrayed typically, with their wings and their rosy little cheeks, and they look like, you know, meek little women. And if they don't look like meek women, they look like chubby cherubs. That's not the case biblically. These are God's messengers who come with blazing glory. Blazing glory. To make a manly man fall on his face in fear. So it's not a wonder the scripture says that they were 
terribly frightened. But again, we see grace, don't we? Verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Good news, great joy for all the people. This verb translated bring good news is also translated to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Good news, preach the good news. Herald the good news. Preach means to herald. Gospel means good news. What you're hearing today, beloved, is the good news. You're being reminded of the good news. And if you're here this morning and you could care less about this message, you especially need to pay attention. You're hearing good news. You're lost and you need to be saved and there's only one way. It's being declared to you this morning. Notice he says, for all the people, the most common expression of the people normally normally would mean the people of Israel. As the good news came in the first instance to God's ancient people. However, this, this news is universal in scope. So it's, more, it's for more than just the Jewish people. Look, for instance, at Revelation chapter 14, 6, right here on the screen. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. You see, the gospel goes out to all. And as it goes out to the all, some will be saved. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the angel continues, verse 11. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, try in your mind to place yourself in the position of these shepherds. You're doing your job. That's all you're out there to do. You're there to do your job. You're out there working the night shift. Whether you're sleeping or standing, you are now awake. You have been awakened by the glory and the splendor of God through this angel who's declaring this truth. And he just said, for today, in the city of David, there's been born for who? For who? For you. For you. He speaks to these shepherds a Savior who's Christ the Lord. Today, today, time and space, this angel, an eternal angel speaks. Today, this day, this good news is embodied now in time and space. And not only is this good news embodied in time and space, it's also embodied in a person. A person. Where? In the city of Israel's greatest king, David. The origin of Israel's royal line. So this king would be Israel's Messiah. Here we see the English word Christ. It comes from the Greek Christos, which itself comes from the Hebrew Hamashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one. And furthermore, he's called, notice, Savior, Lord You know, we're so overly accustomed to the word Savior today. So overly accustomed. Jesus is my Savior. Right? People evangelize you on the street. Do you know, are are you saved? Well, yes. Jesus is my Savior. We say it so flippantly. But the mission of this child is to be Savior, which means he's here to be a rescuer, a deliverer. He's here to rescue sinners from the bondage of their nature, the sin nature. You see, many in Israel were, ho- were hoping for a political Messiah. To free them from Roman oppression. To get Herod off the throne and replace him with a rightful descendant of David. But that, however, was not the kind of rescue that God had in mind. Not at all. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. If you remember, Mark read from it this morning, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He said, She, Mary, will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? Their sins. Their sins. Jesus, meaning Jehovah saves, Yahweh saves, Almighty God, the creator of the universe, saves. Why? 
Because people are lost. He delivers them. Why? Because they're in bondage. He frees them. Why? Because they're slaves. To what? Their nature. Sin. To sin and the devil. He brings them life. Why? Because they're dead. Spiritually dead. They walk and they talk and they move and they dance, but they're spiritually dead. So he's not talking about political asylum here but rather deliverance from the power and the penalty of sin. A Savior who's Christ the Lord. Now, both of these nouns are titles that this baby wears. He's both Christ and he's both Lord and Christ. Literally, it would read Christ Lord. He is Christ Lord. That's who this baby is. And notice that as the angel addresses God's chosen recipients of this glorious good news, he says, notice, today, today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior. The pronoun you here, beloved, is emphatic. It's emphatic. For you he has been born. For you he has been sent. Specifically to these shepherds, the angel says, to you a Savior has been born. This baby born today is the fulfillment of all of those promises of old. What we know is the Old Testament. All the promises of the Old Testament. First promised in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. Right there in Genesis 3, God promised that there would be a coming one through the seed of the woman. And that through that woman would come a faithful one, the anointed one, to finally deal with sin and its source. He would come and crush the head of Satan. But in the process, his heel would be bruised. A final blow to the enemy, but he would suffer in the process. So he was promised to arrive. And he was promised to arrive not as an anointed one, but the anointed one. That's what was announced to these awestruck shepherds this night. A Savior who's Christ the Lord. Now, the word for Lord is used in a variety of ways in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is the Greek translation of what we know as the Old Testament. In the most common way that it's translated, it's translated, is to translate the personal name of God, Yahweh. So not only is he a person born this day, he's of the line of David, he is Savior, he's the long-awaited Messiah, but he's also, beloved, Almighty God in a body. He's God. So the announcement, notice, the announcement of the king's coming is very lofty. The speech employed by the angel was very regal. It was a very kingly kind of speech here. But the manner, from the announcement to the manner, there's a great change. Because the manner in which he would come was anything but noble. It was anything but dignified. This king, the king of glory, the king of kings, the savior, the son of God, who would come out of eternity and enter time and space. You mean the one who created the universe? He spoke it into existence. He's here and he's my savior according to this angel. That's right. So, the angel says, let me tell you how to find him. Here's direction, verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. A manger. Now, certainly there could have been a number of children born this night. You had tens of thousands of people pressing in to this region. And wrapping a baby in swaddling cloths was also a a very common practice. So if you had a number of children born that night, they would have all probably been wrapped in swaddling cloth. Wrapped up tight. But finding one wrapped and lying in a manger is another story. The king of the universe? Now, most of us, speaking of mangers... Most of us have seen the Renaissance-era paintings of a wooden manger with hay in it. 
you know, sitting in the middle of a little A-frame European-style um, hut, like on the Christmas cards that you have set up on your table right now. Well, that would not have been the picture in this day. The reality was is that Jesus was probably born in a cave, hollowed out of a hillside, where there was a stone trough also hollowed out of a wall of that cave, a feeding trough for feeding domesticated animals. So the angel was giving instructions in how to find this baby. And this baby who was just declared by, through the mouth of this angel was a king. He's savior. He's lord of the universe. He's God incarnate. He'll be wrapped in claws, lying in a feed trough. That stinky, smelly animals eat out of. Humility. The Lord of glory. That is the manner for which he would arrive. Verse 13, and then suddenly, suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Now, multitude here means army. But this army had arrived not to make war, but to bring a message of peace. A message of peace and, in response to that message, praise to God. So the picture implied here by this verse is that there's not some select number of angels behind this one messenger who are praising God, but this is multitudes. Just think of levels of multitude, of multitude, of multitude, of multitude. These men would only be able to see a select number indeed. But I'll tell you what, at the birth of Jesus Christ, there was not multitudes left in heaven and multitudes sent to earth. They were all here with one voice praising Almighty God that His preordained plan was beginning to unfold. So the sound would have been something of unparalleled value. They'd never heard anything like this. Verse 14, what were they saying? These, these multitudes and multitudes of angels were saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. Notice, Peace among men with whom he is pleased. So here's a a hymn of praise. And it's rendered in your Bible as a poem. Notice the first part. It's a doxology towards God. A blessing of a doxology towards Almighty God. Glory in the highest, in the highest heaven. Praise be to God first. And then the second part is a blessing towards men. So here's God the Father in heaven receiving glory because he sent his son just like he said he would. And then second, we see peace among men. Peace among men. Second part. Now, at this point, perhaps you're one who has erroneously thought this, but many people talk about the birth of Christ as bringing some kind of general peace to the whole world, every single person, without exception. But that is not what the angelic multitude is saying here. That's not what they're declaring. Now, it was common thought that in the day of Caesar Augustus, he wanted to be hailed as God. He wanted to be hailed as God, and though he was praised for inaugurating Pax Romana, you know, the peace of Rome, the peace that he provided was an external peace. Temporal peace. It was very temporary. But this king, the real God, the real prince, was offering much more than temporal, external peace. Isaiah the prophet said it like this, For unto us a child is born. There's Christ's humanity. Unto us a child is born, there's his humanity. Unto us a son is given, there's his deity. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Beloved, Prince of Peace. So this is much more than external political peace, isn't it? First century philosopher 
Epictetus said this, quote, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he's unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. Man yearns for peace inside. Man is trying to escape the guilt of his sin. That's why he seeks out psychologists and that's why he takes drugs and drinks and he tries to kill the pain. He tries to quiet his screaming conscience. But the peace that Jesus brings, it's not, it's not outward peace. It's not subjective peace. It's not a feeling of the heart, beloved. Well, wait a minute, you say. When I was saved, I felt peace. That's true. The load is lifted. Remember the day you were saved, that weight of sin was lifted from you? And you got up rejoicing, feeling cleansed and purified. Now, as subjective as that is, and as great as that subjective feeling is, the peace that Jesus came to bring was objective peace. And the peace that Jesus came to bring, beloved, was peace with God. Peace with God. An objective cessation of hostility with God. Termination of of his hostility towards us and our sin. Well, God is loving. That's right, but he's also a God who is a God of hate. He hates sin. He's a God of wrath. Peace had to be established between holy God and sinful man, you see. Therefore, the Prince of Peace had to come. To remove the enmity that is between us and God and God and us. For instance, in in, uh, Romans, the epistle to the Romans, the Apostle Paul outlines our desperate need of salvation in that glorious epistle, which we may be starting in February, study through Romans. Well, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following, he lays out the wonderful message of justification by faith alone. To be justified before God, declared free from all blame. All of that glorious doctrine is based solely on the work of Christ alone. You can't earn it. It is a gracious, sovereign gift of God. So after Paul lays that out, he gets to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and he gives the results and the benefits of justification by faith. And look at what he writes. Therefore, having been justified, declared free from all blame by faith, we have peace with who? With God. Which means whoever, whoever is not justified, whoever is not a Christian, that means they're at war with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 10. For if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's frightening for me to think that at one time, not only was I at enmity, meaning at war and hostility with God, but he was also at war with me. And while he was at war with me, at enmity with me, I was reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ according to his sovereign plan and purpose and timing. So the war is over in Christ, you see. That's what it is to have peace with God. That's why the Prince of Peace came. It wasn't some subjective outward feeling. It's objective. And it terminates something. War with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So the angels praised God that night saying, notice, on earth, peace among men with whom he's pleased. So who are the recipients of such glorious peace? Notice, there's only peace here given to certain people, according to the text. Only certain ones can have this kind of peace with God. Notice, it's only among men with whom he's pleased. So does that mean that God stands as heaven and he looks at all the populace of earth like this and he goes, he picked up garbage in the park this week, so I'm pleased with him, so I'll save him. He gave a buck to the homeless guy standing out in the middle of the intersection here, so I'm pleased with him, so I'll save him. 
He called his father, who he's hated all his life, and said, Happy Father's Day. I'm pleased with him, so I'll save him. Is that how God works? No. Notice, it is only among men with whom he is pleased. It literally reads like this, peace among men of good pleasure. In other words, peace among men who are the object of God's good pleasure. The object of whose pleasure? His pleasure. Leon Morris comments on this verse. He said this, quote, The angels are saying that God will bring peace for men on whom his favor rests. There's an emphasis on God, not man. It is those whom God chooses rather than those who choose God of whom the angels speak. Simply put, the angels are speaking of those who are recipients of God's grace. What does grace mean? It means unmerited favor. Who deserves it? The point? It's unmerited. Nobody. He dispenses his grace to whom he wills. See, he's the free will agent. We're not free will agents. We're in bondage. We're trapped. We're in jail because of our nature. We're like this. Because of our nature, we can't freely worship God. We've got to be set free. So the free will of God determines who he sets his grace upon. Thus he comes to lowly, wretched shepherds. This is simply another lesson in sovereign grace. God's free will grace. Peace among men with whom he's pleased according to the good pleasure of his will. This is what Ephesians describes for us. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in who? In himself. That's exactly what's being declared here by the angels this night. I mean, what better illustration is there of God's sovereign grace and salvation than shepherds? Shepherds. Despised, sinful, dishonest, unworthy, untrustworthy, smelly shepherds. Notice also, what are these men doing, these shepherds? They're not out there seeking God. Did you notice that? They didn't say, fellas, okay, let's build this little stand and tower to seek God. The God of Israel that we never go worship anyhow. No. They were doing their job. Some of them were probably sleeping and one or two of them were watching over the flock and then God sends a messenger to them. That's sovereign grace. While they worked, God chose to display His grace. God does not choose to show His grace to many. Not to the wise, not to many noble. These were not many wise and these were not many noble, were they? Turn in your Bibles, if you will, for an example of this to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 26. Here's Paul writing to the church of Corinth. He writes to this body of believers and he's reproving them time and time again because they're so puffed up and they're so proud. And he says, For consider your calling, brethren. This is the call to salvation. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Next two words. But God. But God has what? Chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has what? Chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has what? Chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, in order that what, beloved? No man may boast before God. No man boasts before God. No man can stand up and lift up his little chin and say, I accepted Jesus and you didn't. 
We've both been given the same free will. I chose, you didn't, so what? You can boast, right? You would be able to boast. But God's sovereign grace comes in His perfect timing for His glory and His good pleasure. That's what's being declared here. So there you have the recipients of sovereign grace, lowly shepherds. You have the revelation of sovereign grace, angelic beings sent from heaven. Supernatural revelation. And if you're a Christian here today, you've been given supernatural revelation. You've been given the revelation to believe. It's called the effectual calling. When the word was preached, it had an effect on you that transformed you, that drew you to Christ because he drew near to you first, you see? That's why you believe. When you pray to God with regard to your salvation, you do not say, Lord, I hope you appreciate how smart and intellectual I am to choose you. Do you pray like that? No, of course not. What do we say? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for my salvation. One of our men here is a captain in the the fire department. He texted his message when they received a call. And his wife received the message and forwarded it to me. And she goes, my husband just texted me. And she goes, I thank, she said, my husband said, I thank my God and my Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation. I thank God that he has shown me the truth. Because he just walked into an apartment where a 20-something-year-old young man put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. And his roommate found him like that. Sad. Breaks your heart. So his first response when he sees it, seeing gross things as he does as part of his job, his first response is, God, I thank you for my salvation, that I have hope, that I've been saved from the grip of death and sin from myself and your wrath. That's a proper perspective. Notice now the response of sovereign grace, verses 15 to 20. This now is an unconditional response, unconditional response of those recipients of grace. Verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, imagine what that looked like. Here you have multitudes of angels and they just start heading back out to heaven. Can't imagine. Did they go multitude layer of multitude layer? Did they go one by one? I don't know. Imagine the sight. So, When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So, having experienced the unconditional grace of God, they respond to it unconditionally. And the first manner of response to sovereign grace is that they believe the gospel. They believe the good news. In this response, we're going to look at three quick responses of sovereign grace. This is a model for us, beloved. They were convinced that the, angel, that the angel's message came directly from God. I mean, they said, notice, they began to say one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They didn't even say that the angel made notice but the lord has made notice they've made known to us so they didn't go to see if the angels were telling the truth they believed and departed in obedience having been given direction from the angel so they were, they were eager to respond they were quick to go they made haste to do what they were told What does James 2.20 say? Faith without works is what? Dead. You can say all day long you believe in Jesus, right? I believe in Jesus. But you see, when Jesus does a divine work, you don't do something to earn the salvation. It is a product, a sign that someone's been saved. Because he's done this glorious sovereign work, there's a desire to do in response to that which he's already done. Notice the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight. Which means that they all began to say at one time, simultaneously, they began to say, let's go. (laughs) Let's go. 
Notice they said straight. Straight to Bethlehem. Straight is a word that has a strong sense of urgency or, or immediacy. Let's go now. So, verse 16, so they came in a hurry. And they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. So they left in haste, believing the good news, you see. That there was born for them, again, born for you, the angel said, a savior. So they made their way, responding to the truth that they believed. The good news. The gospel. Imagine them working their way through town. Having in mind the message of the angel. Okay, let's think about this, fellas. It's a baby in swaddling cloths, wrapped up, lying in a manger. Okay, there's the inn. It's packed. You see that? There's people all over the place. I don't think we go have, ha- have to go scavenging through the groups here and go into the inn looking for a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths in the inn because he did say a manger, so let's start at the back end. There's a cave. We know this area. There's a cave. They make their way through town, pondering the words of the angels. And obviously they find them. You know, if you want to experience God's grace, beloved, if you want to experience the grace of God in your life like these shepherds, you must begin by believing the good news. The good news that for you, for you individually, there is a Savior, a Rescuer, who is Jesus the Lord. Step one, you must believe the gospel. Not about the gospel. You must believe in the gospel, into the gospel. Not mere assent. You know, I grew up most of my life believing about the gospel. I believed about the gospel. If people would blaspheme God's name, I would stand up against people who would blaspheme his name in reason from what I knew to be true, that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, is an unsaved man. (laughs) But in his perfect timing, his sovereign grace came to me, and the Holy Spirit regenerated me. I was a dead man in my sin who could utter the words, but I was dead in my sin. He transformed me in his perfect timing. Whoo, gospel power. So you must believe the gospel. Well, how do I believe it? You're up there preaching. How do I believe the gospel? What do I do? Simply obey the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came out in his public ministry preaching the gospel. He said it like this. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the words of Jesus Christ. In other words, turn from everything you know to be sin and an offense against God. That's a response of receiving the gospel. It's not to earn it. If you believe in the gospel, that's what you will do. You will turn from your sin and everything that's offense against God and you'll embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Putting all faith and all confidence in Jesus Christ is your only hope for he's the only way of salvation. So notice the first way they responded to God's sovereign grace was believing into the gospel. It's a dangerous place to live your life believing about the gospel. Because Jesus did say in the last day, many will cry out what? Lord, Lord, we did all this in your name and all that in your name. And he'll say, depart from me, you who practice iniquity. I never knew you, though you claim to know me. Now, the second way they responded to God's grace is that they proclaimed his gospel. Response number two, verse 17. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Made known means to reveal, means to declare, to to explain, to simply tell other people. These are the first real evangelists of the Christian era right here. The first recipients of the grace of God in Christ Jesus who was born this night. Verse 18, and then all who heard it wondered at this thing, at these things, which were told them by the shepherds. 
Now, probably as they walked through town, they declared this truth to those that were coming and going. The message of God through this angel. And then finally, upon arrival, they actually tell it to Mary and Joseph. Isn't that amazing? Verse 19. Mary hears it, and Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, Mary pondered a lot of things throughout her life. She pondered the words of Simeon in the temple that a sword would pierce her soul because of this child. And there she was at the foot of the cross, watching her son be nailed to a cross, bludgeoned, beaten beyond recognition, beaten to a pulp, didn't even look like a man. And finally they would ram a sword into his side, piercing her soul. That's why he came. So Mary treasured these things. You know, it's interesting that Luke probably received first-hand information from Mary herself. Notice how he opens the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So once a person has experienced God's sovereign grace and salvation, you can't help but to tell others, can you? You can't contain this truth. It's not only kind of a certain sense of duty that we have as sinners saved by grace, but at the same time, even more than having a sense of duty, there's a great desire to proclaim this truth. When you look at your friend who's on the broad road to hell, that there's good news. Jesus, the Savior of the world, came, lived, and died, and rose again. So the first way they responded was believing the gospel. The second way they responded was proclaiming his gospel. And third and finally, notice, in response to the sovereign grace of God, they praised God. They praised God. Verse 20. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. Notice, just as had been told them. Key words of the verse. Just as it had been told them. See, what was told to them had great value because of who it was that was born. The Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace. So wherever, wherever God chooses to display his sovereign grace, there will without question in the heart of that individual come forth praises to God. Like my firefighting buddy. He praised God for his salvation when he saw a man laying dead on the floor. Because outside of the grace of God, he could have ended up the same way. Any one of us in this room without the restraining grace of God in our lives could end up the same way, putting a gun to your head and pulling the trigger. This good news they praise God for. So here you have these nobodies, these shepherds, through an act of sovereign grace, they heard the gospel and they believed it. They were allowed by God's grace to witness the, the birth of the perfect Lamb of God who, my, my dear friends, as I close, He came to be slaughtered. This baby lying in a feed trough came to be slain. That's why He came to the earth. Now it's interesting, you don't want to miss this, that although shepherds were looked at as a despised class of people, these shepherds looked over sheep that were not ordinary sheep. And because they looked over sheep that were not ordinary sheep, they weren't any ordinary shepherds either. These shepherds that were pasturing sheep 
in the region of Bethlehem were shepherding sheep that were destined for temple sacrifice. The Mishnah, the oral law of God, of the Jews, reads as follows. Any animal found between Jerusalem and a spot near Bethlehem must be presumed to be a sacrificial victim. They raised these flocks in order to be taken less than five miles away to be slaughtered in temple sacrifice to the God Jehovah, Almighty God Yahweh, as a foreshadowing of propitiation, satisfaction of God, that his wrath is eased because of shed blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And 33 years later, the one born in Bethlehem would also be slain less than five miles away on a Roman cross. The types were the lambs, those sheep. He's the antitype, the fulfillment, once and for all and forever, who would lay his life down. He would be slain on a cross where Jesus would atone at that place for the sins of those shepherds. And he would atone in that place 33 years later for all others he came to die for. Is that you? Are your sins atoned for? Perhaps this morning you realize as the Holy Spirit ministers to you that you are at enmity with God. You're at war with God. In other words, you're not saved. You're at war with God. He's at war with you. Jesus came to make peace. He came to provide a way. If that's you, I pray that your heart cries out this morning, what shall I do to be saved? It goes back to the words of Jesus. Repent and believe. Because repentance is a sign that he's already at work. He transforms you. He'll grant you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, to return from your, to turn from your rebellion and embrace Jesus Christ. So the manger and the cross appear as bookends to the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life bookended by a manger at his inception. And a cross at the end. He came to pardon the prostitute. He came to pardon the publican. He came to cleanse the leper. He came to cleanse the greatest outcasts of society. He came to provide a way. And the greatest of all sinners, who's the greatest of all sinners? I'll tell you who the greatest of all sinners are. Are those who think they're good people. They're the most deceived. Because when you think you're a good person, you don't think you need Christ. And if you don't need, think you need Christ, you're the most lost of all. So may he, by his grace, bake, break through that hard shell if that's you this morning. Come to Christ and believe. And may we as believers go out this week, beloved, believing the gospel. Because if we believe the gospel, we'll proclaim the gospel. And if we proclaim the gospel... As we believe the gospel, you can't help but to praise God for the gospel. Amen? You praise Him for the gospel. We'll have hearts full of thanksgiving. So may you be blessed this week as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you're one that feels you're at enmity with God, make peace with Him today. Call out for His mercy. Call out for His grace. And if there's anything that I can do, I can help you with. To clarify the truths declared this morning, you can see me out in the hallway or I can point you to one of the other elders. Amen? Have a great, wonderful Christmas. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord magnify his gospel truth in your minds and hearts this Christmas season and beyond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the glorious reminder of gospel truth that it's justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone who came, the Prince of Peace, to make peace with you, our Lord, our Father, Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth, by laying down His life, having 
lowered himself to become a man, standing in the place of sinners like me, but raising up again because he was God in the flesh. May you bless your people, I pray. Fill them over flowing with Holy Spirit passion and power, knowledge and wisdom from on high. And Lord, for anyone who walked in dead in trespasses and sins, I pray that you'd quicken them, cause them, enable them, grace them, Lord, to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to the glorious gospel truth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Redeem them today that they be born of the Spirit, embracing the Son, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Bless them, keep them, I pray in His name. Amen.